part of a message. If you're listening online, I recommend that you uh, listen to part one first. But here we have the treaty is a stake in the ground for justice in New Zealand. That's what the, today's message is actually entitled. And I was looking for stakes, and I couldn't find anything that really represented better than that stake. But I know it's quite, a, quite appropriate, actually, because it's a stake that's been hidden for a long time. It's been under the earth, if you like. But it's, it's, it's incredibly solid. It's incredibly real. And it's, it's come um, very much to the forefront of New Zealand um, culture that we live in. You know, I used to think that what's past is past, and all of us should just get, we just get one shot at life, and we need to make the most of the shot that we, we, we have, we're, we're dealt a certain hand, we should run with that hand, and if you, have, if you work hard and you get a few good breaks, then you'll do well in life. Can I have the lights brought up a little bit more, please? And I thought that the important thing was really just to focus on the future. And then I got called to pastor this church. <laughs> and there'd just been a split here in the church. And there'd been all sorts of accusations that had been made. There'd been letters sent there'd, that one of the pastors had, had just had a heart attack. There were factions formed. There was gossip going all around. And... Eventually, the church had blown apart and gone basically in four different um, directions. And as we as a leadership began to study this, and we realized that the same scenario had happened at least four times in living memory. Newton was a great help, Newton Dodge, at that time, and he could remember similar things happening over and over again. And one pastor, for instance, hadn't been paid in months because the church secretary had something against him, and just stopped paying his wages. And I remember ringing up a past pastor of this church and asking, is there anything that, I said, I'm from, I'm, I'm now at St. Albans Baptist Church, I'm ringing on behalf of the church, is there anything that we should apologize to you for? Is there, have we caused pain and hurt to you? And he started crying on the other end of the phone instantly, and he's going, no, there's nothing, no, I don't want to talk about anything, I'm fine, and put the phone down. And so we went over a, about a year period and we began um, looking at all the things that had taken place and seeking to put things right and seek forgiveness and do whatever we could to be able to make things right. And instead of me being the next pastor that in about four or five years' time being kicked out, Sandra and I have enjoyed 21, over 21 years of relatively smooth, relatively <laughs> smooth, because we're all human and stuff happens. But we've just enjoyed this, this smooth 21 years of basically peace within this church. And Sandra and I are the longest serving pastors in this church by a long, long way. So what we realized from that, what we learned is that where there's mess that's been swept under the carpet, if you leave it, it will trip you up. The past affects the future. And it's exactly the same in our country New Zealand. Where there's been oppression, where there's been unjust things that have happened, they need to be addressed. And justice, as I was speaking about two weeks ago, um, starts from understanding. 
And this verse that I want to read um, now from Proverbs has been, has been in each of the three services that we've, that we've had. Ruth actually gave it to her son last week. And so this is something God is really wanting us to understand. But this is what it says. My son if or daughter, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to knowledge, sorry, to understanding... Indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you will look for it as you would if it was silver, and search for it as if it's hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. In other words, if we will go after something to that degree, we will start to see from God's perspective. He will speak into our situations. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from His mouth come knowledge and understanding. And so I want to say to you, even though our, our actual history of, of um, European uh, colonization of this country has not been taught in our schools very much at all, and there's things that we just don't know, we need to go on a journey of understanding. And I want to ask you to open your heart and your mind up to me today even if some of the things that I have to say are quite hard to take. And I want to reiterate from last week that we didn't cause any of the injustices, so none of us are guilty. Can you tell the person next to you, do not take any guilt. You are not guilty. Don't carry guilt, don't carry blame, and I don't believe we need to be threatened in looking at this either. Now, there are extremes in our country. There are extremes of voices. I'm advocating something down the middle. And there are some who would say, well, Maori have caused their own injustices against the Moriori, for instance, or the intertribal injustices of what have gone on in history. And I realize that there's actually very few Maori people that I'm speaking to here today. But, but as a Pākehā, as a European of, of European descent, I'm just wanting to highlight where my forebears have gotten it wrong. And God will speak to Maori about Maori injustice. God's, God's no respecter of people. But I believe he's speaking to us today about things that are, have happened in our own, from our culture towards the Maori culture. And just because there have been Maori injustices, it doesn't empower Europeans to be unjust. True? True? It's true, isn't it? And friends, the treaty, if you have a look at this, is a stake in the ground of an aspiration showing God's intent for us as a nation. And it's always been God's intent for us as a nation, I believe. You know, last week I was explaining that God and the church, and, and that through the missionaries, were also party in the treaty. The treaty is not just Maori and the crown, it also involves missionaries. In other words, it involves the church. In other words, it involves our God. And there would have been no treaty guaranteeing Maori equal rights and protection as equal British citizens and guaranteeing the exclusive and undisturbed possession of their lands for as long as they desired to own them if it weren't for the fact that in the providence of God, and if you read history from the, um, whether it's Captain uh, Cook or, or anything to do with um, early history from a Christian perspective, you will constantly find the words in the providence of God. 
this happen. In other words, God getting people in the right place at the right time for the right outcome. You know, if it weren't for the providence of God that Lord Glenelg and James Stevenson were Christian reformers and they just happened to be the colonial secretary and the undersecretary for the colonies at the very time that the treaty was being made. And they framed it and sent Hobson out with instructions of how it was to be presented. And these were sons of Clapham sect Christians and, and they, they sent and, and started the whole thing without... Without God's involvement in the providence of God of these men, without them being Christians and their roles, the treaty would never have been written in the way that it was or is. And their treaty enshrines equality as races under the law, British law, and then New Zealand law. But the really sad part is the Maori never, ever became equal. Within just a few years, Maori were treated unjustly. Colonialism, the land grab, was unleashed upon New Zealand. And the aspirations of a quarter of century of work by the missionaries and the Christian reformers from Britain were dashed and buried in the boatloads of settlers who came. And the new British and then the New Zealand government um, attitude of using force of soldiers and firepower to enforce the taking of the land from Maori. But it's interesting because in Maori history, this was prophesied that it would happen even before white people had even landed in New Zealand. Can I say that again? This is interesting because it was actually prophesied in Maori history that this would happen even before white people had landed in New Zealand. Captain James Cook is the one who's credited with the first landing and contact, and that was in 1769. But Maori have a history in 1766 of one of their prophets, Toiroa, who saw the coming of the Europeans. He saw it before it happened. You know, missions used to be about taking the gospel and civilization, in other words, European ways, to indigenous people and assuming that they knew nothing about the true God in heaven. Of Jesus. But now, missiology, those who, who study missions and are taken still to unreached tribes, don't assume zero God awareness in indigenous cultures. Because they've found that because all people actually come back to two people called Adam and Eve, and then another family who was Noah's family with the destroying of everything on the earth, that there are many things of the knowledge of the true God buried and deeply within every culture in this world. And they found that within, have found that within Maori culture, although Maori culture seems to be a, a, a culture of a pantheistic culture of gods for this and gods for that, deeper than that is a, they discovered there's a, that Maori had a knowledge of the supreme god, Eel. And so this prophet, Toeroa, saw the coming of Europeans. He saw ships, clothing. He knew that the men would wear pants. And, and that they would have horses and pigs, although there were no such animals in New Zealand. He even saw that 
one sort of boat that they would have would be a boat with a, a steam engine, and it would have smoke coming out of it. And, and, and he knew that. He knew that many of the men would smoke pipes. And he made pictures and, and made models of all these things. And, and he shared this information with the people who were living in the Napier and Gisborne region three years before Captain, Captain Cook rode ashore and his men rode ashore in, in that uh, Poverty Bay, Gisborne area. The Maori people were being prepared. And this prophet, Toiroa, spoke these words that are recorded. He said, the name of their God will be the son who was killed. He said, the name of their God will be the son who is killed. A good God, yet the people will still be oppressed. The name of their God will be the son who was killed. We, we know his na name is... Jesus. 48 years before Marsden gets on uh, Oihi Beach in, in the Bay of Islands and preaches the first message about the son who was killed, Toiroa told his people that the white people would come, they would look like this, they would wear these clothes, they would come in these ships, and the name of their God that they will bring to us is the son who was killed, but the people, the tangata whenua of the land, will still be oppressed. Oppressed by the works of darkness, they were, especially the power of Utu or revenge and cannibalism. But even when they became spiritually free, the Maori people went on to still be oppressed. And tragically, history actually bears that out very well. So I want to ask the question, what brought the Maori people, Maori people to a treaty? And I want to say it was a convergence of about six things. If you think of like weaving, it was the strands going over and under. And one of the, the biggest ones was that muskets changed intertribal warfare forever. The Maori had a pattern of intertribal warfare. Basically, um, uh, they'd had it for centuries. It's like civil war each summer that goes on. Uh, but it was hand to hand. And people were killed, but not in massive numbers. But in 1820, Hongi Heka, um, a chief from Kaio in the north, acquired hundreds of muskets, possibly even a thousand plus muskets. He, he went to England, and he was obviously a very, I've got a picture of him up here, and he was obviously a very charismatic person um, who, who uh, really impressed the King of England. And the King of England gave him lots of gifts. But he arranged, Tongi arranged some, um, some deals. And before he got on the ship to come home, he sold all of, the tr all of the gifts that the King of England had given him, except the chainmail armor suit, which he wore into, uh, into battle. And so he was virtually indestructible with musket bullets going around. Unless they got him in the face, he was going to keep living. And so he, he kept this suit, but sold everything else and bought muskets. And they were loaded onto the ship and they came back to New Zealand. And Hongiheka set out in the 1820s with 2, 000, around 2,000 warriors. And he decimated the upper, the upper North Island of, of from a Maori from other tribes. But it wasn't just him. In the Waikato, there was Te uh, Waharoa, sorry, and in Kapiti, there was Te Rapraha, and, and thousands of Maori in the, in the um, 18, 1820s, thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Maori were killed in the, in the warfare, with this new type of warfare with, with muskets. 
and whole people groups, whole iwi, shifted their area where they had been living to get away from the, 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 the warfare that was coming that they could not um, successfully oppose. You know, scholars tell us that probably about a quarter of the Maori population who, who were alive in New Zealand at that time were killed. You think of it. Probably about at least 25,000 Maori people, brave fathers, sons, warriors, are wiped out across our country here. Just the effect of that upon Maori, Maori um, people. Death was everywhere. And slaves were taken back up into the north by Hongihika and, and uh, up to the area to, to do whatever slaves were required to do in those days. And, and uh, they were taken north, but the gospel was also being preached in the north, particularly to the children. And the kids would come to Christ and they'd be telling their parents about it. And suddenly, although there was hardly anyone coming to Christ through the missionaries themselves, suddenly Napui started releasing all their slaves. Now, you know someone saved, saved when they released their slaves. Something amazing was taking place by the Spirit of God. The slaves, of course, had, many had become Christian because... The gospel is, is the good news to the poor. The poor are the most open, open to it. And, and you know that conversion's genuine um, when that's actually taking place. And so they went home and they began walking home to where they'd been taken from. And they took their own changed lives because they'd met Jesus Christ. And they took the gospel story of how it had happened back to their tribe. And one key event happened in this way. In 1835, missionaries Alfred and Charlotte Brown came to live in, the Waikato, in a Waikato Maori village. And one early convert to them was the chief of the village, Nakuku. And he'd been given the Gospel of Luke. He was given the Gospel of Luke and Maori. And he let his daughter um, wear it in a kitty that was a flax bag that she wore around her neck. And one night, um, other Maori attacked them in their village and, and they. they um, managed to get away, the two of them with a few other uh, men and women, and, and they went to Wairere Falls in the Kaimai Ranges. And that night, a group of Maori from Rotorua attacked them while they were at the falls. And sadly, Tarori, his daughter, was killed. And the keti and the gospel was ripped off her neck and taken. So Nakuku picks his daughter up, and he carries her back to the village, and he buries his daughter. And at the tangi, he absolutely stunned everybody by pronouncing forgiveness upon the man who'd killed his daughter. Not Utu, but forgiveness. This is what he said. He said, there lies my child. She has been murdered as a payment for your bad conduct. Because that's what Utu is. You do something wrong, the other tribe will come and get, and they'll take revenge. But do not rise up to obtain satisfaction for her. God will do that. Let this be the conclusion of the war with Rotorua. Let peace now be made. And history records that that was so stunning for the people he was speaking to and the tribes all around him that the offer of forgiveness released an avalanche of grace that eventually rolled out across the whole of Aotearoa. Let me tell you two other extra things that happened. A month after her death, Nakuku discovers the name of the man who's killed her. 
Uita. And when Uita had returned to his village, he'd met a released slave called Ripahau, who was walking back to Otaki down in, in the Levin area. And he'd been educated in the mission station and he'd learned to read, this re released slave. So Uita, Uita asked Ripahau to read to him from this book that he's pulled off the girl's neck. And the murderer hears the words of Jesus. And they go deeply into his heart. And he's hungry. He's hungry for more. And he wants to know this God. And not afterwards, Yuita heads off to find Nakuku and apologize to him for killing his daughter and to seek forgiveness. And instead of Utu, the two men powerfully reconcile. Now you put that in context. You think of your kids. You think if you've got a daughter, how would you go at giving that sort of forgiveness? But meanwhile, Ripahau returns to Otaki, and soon a war party from Rotorua passes through bringing books, and, and Rip, uh, Ripahau notices that, that the Gospel of Luke with the name Nakuku is in it. So he grabs it, and he gets it. It's Tarori's Gospel yet again. And Ripahau starts reading it to his, tri to, to his tribe. And some people are skeptical, but many are open. And two who become Christians are Tamihana Tiraprah and his cousin, Martini Tififi. I think we've got a picture of... Uh, there's Tiraprah himself, the great chief, and his son, Tamihana, who, who came to Christ. And this is, what, this is what Tamihana says. He said, we learnt every day, every night. We didn't lie down to sleep. We sat at night in the hui around, in the hut, sorry, around the fire and with the fire in the middle. And Fifi had a part of the book, and I had a part. And sometimes we, we went to sleep upon the book, and then we awoke and read again. And after we'd been there six months, we could read a little very slowly. Six months of reading the Gospel of Luke. What was the effect in Tamihana's life? Well, Tamihana and, and Tefiti, uh, Tefifi go to the Bay of Islands and they ask for if they can have a missionary to come. And there aren't many missionaries in New Zealand. But one young man, Octavius Hadfield, comes back with them. He's a young guy in his 20s. He's not very old. He's sickly. He's asthmatic. He says to Henry Williams, he says, look, I'm going to die in the Bay of Islands. I can die in, in Otaki. Just send me down there. I might as well die down there and see if I can do something good. And so um, Henry actually comes on the boat as they come down with him, and he sends him down here. And when Octavius... Um, gets to Otaki, the Tohonga, a Tohonga puts a curse on Octavius, and everyone's watching, waiting to see when he will die. But everyone's respect for Octavius grew when the Tohonga died, and Octavius continued to be stay strong. And Octavius said, okay, I'm calling my first church service. And he calls the people, and on the first church service, a thousand Maori people, men and women, gather to hear what Octavius has to say to them. That's every seat in this auditorium times two. A thousand Maori come to hear him. And then Tamihana and Tiratpraha decide, wow, we've got to go down to Otatahi, to Christchurch, and share the good news of Jesus Christ with the people that my father 
attacked and decimated in Naitahu. And this is what he writes. He says, Martini and I decided to take the message to Naitahu. Tiraprahā, his dad, was very angry with us for going before he could extract some more revenge. But soon all the Naitahu there believed the word of the true God of heaven. There's, there's just been an amazing revival across Maori culture back in the 1830s. So Maori were ready, Maori were ready for the true God the God of peace. And families and hapu had been slaughtered and tribal migration had occurred and Maori were ready for a God who would be a God of peace and not a God of war and who could usher in peace right across the nation. The the warfare of of the 1820s and Hongihika and the, the others was so devastating, Maori people were ready to embrace peace and the God Jesus who brought it. All the evil customs like the wife of a Maori chief needing to commit suicide upon her husband's death would cease and cannibalism would stop. And in Henry Williams and other missionaries, they found men who were willing to walk out into battles and unafraid broke a peace and then call the warriors themselves to give their hearts to the Prince of Peace. So over a number of years, peace broke out right across New Zealand and the Maori trusted missionaries to a high degree. Their word about the treaty held great weight. The fourth thing that was happening was there was a move not just to peace, but to prosperity amongst Maori. Many Maori people are entrepreneurial, and they could see how feeding the settlers in New Zealand and even supplying Australian towns with food and selling their masks could prosper them because some of the chiefs had traveled as far as England. They'd been to Australia. They'd seen the islands. They'd been to all sorts of different places. And fifthly, literacy was breaking out across the Maori tribes. The missionaries had written their language down, and a printing press had come with a missionary called Colenso. It was a time of change. And the Maori themselves were asking for British help against the worst excesses of whalers and sailors. Think of it, folks. Whalers, sailors, and sailors are not often going to be the cream of British society. No offense if you have whalers, sailors, or sailors in your background. (laughs) All sorts of excesses and incidents were happening, particularly up in Russell. Russell was called the hellhole of the Pacific. In fact, the pub in Russell is still called the hellhole. You can go and take a photo of the sign. They say up to a 1,000 ships were visiting um, New Zealand annually. There was real problems Maori and missionary have been asking for, for Britain to, for protection under British law. And then came the arrival of the settlers under Edward Gibbon Wakefield with a company called the New Zealand Company. Now, doesn't that sound official? It sounds like the government sent this company out, but nothing could be further from the, from the truth. Wakefield was told no by the British Parliament and the House of Lords very, very clearly. And he was an ex-criminal. If he'd been in jail a few years later, he might have ended up in Australia. He went to prison in 1829 for the abduction of a schoolgirl who was of aristocratic class. And he approached the official government for permission and they said no. But he defiantly, with the backing of 40 ship owners and other wealthy people, he sold the dream of land in New Zealand to English settlers hoping for a new start on the other side of the world. And they were duped. Our forebears were duped. 
He'd never been to New Zealand. He didn't own any land in New Zealand, but he sold it as if he did. And the government's hand was forced as these ships started to set out and the, uh, the planning for it was taking place. And Wakefield sent his brother out to buy as much land as possible for as little as possible. And within months of landing in New Zealand, he supposedly bought 20 million acres of land. Do you want to say that with me? 20 million acres of land. The top of the South Island, Blenheim, Nelson, down to Kapiti, Wellington, um, Kapiti Island, uh, sorry, down to Kaikoura, Kapiti Island, where Te Rapraha lived. He was a brave man to think he could take that. A and New Plymouth, some of the finest farming land in our country. And soon after he, he, that, he, he uh, got people to sign uh, for three million acres, which is most of, of the South Island, of, of the people of Naitahu. And here we had a clash of worldviews. Maori ownership of land was tribal, not individual. Only the paramount chief would be able to sell. And it was clashing with the English worldview of, I own my little bit of land and I'll never give it up, and you can't, no, you can't walk on it. And Maori had no concept of individual ownership. And Wakefield had no Maori language and no concept of communal ownership and therefore, who could actually sell? He just wanted some chief signatures on pieces of paper. And Henry Williams, as I said, who had come down um, with Octavius Hadfield, came, came into Wellington just a couple of weeks after, after um, Wakefield had been there in 1839. And, and he was appalled at what Wakefield was claiming ownership to. And they, he said they were completely suspect purchases. And then just four months later, in 1839, the first boatload of settlers to come to New Zealand arrived in Wellington. And they were supposed to live on the land of the flood-prone um, Hutt River at Petoni there, where the cold southerly would come straight up the harbour. And they said, no way, and they moved straight over to Thornton and just pushed Maori off that area. And then they protected it with armed constabulary. So several years later, this is actually after the treaty's been signed, but several years later now, Britain appointed a land commissioner to look at all these purchases that had taken place by um, Wakefield. And his na the man's name was William Spain. And he came and he concluded that the land purchases were illegitimate. In other words, the land had literally just been stolen. And Maori were forcibly re removed from their homes and lands. But what could he do? The settlers were already there. They built their homes and their gardens. So his weak conclusion was to make the New Zealand company pay some more money for the purchases that had happened. So just come back to when Wakefield's just come. We're in 1839, before 1840. So a treaty was needed from a practical level to stop the unofficial and unregulated land grab, or at least try to regulate what was taking place. But unfortunately, it was never, ever honoured. Somehow, very, very shortly afterwards, 1841, the New Zealand company became engaged as the Crown's official land agent, purchasing agent. Can I say that again? Somehow, just a year after the treaty was signed, the New Zealand company that had been getting all this unlawful land taking 
became engaged by the crown as their official agent to buy land. So a lot of the land grabbing was just automatically ratified. Within 50 years of 1840, come up to 1890, just think of a pie graph with 26 pieces in the pie graph, slices. Within 50 years, 25 slices out of 26 had transferred from Maori ownership to Pākehā ownership. Maori now had just one twenty-sixth of their country. That's what makes it so sad when, at the end of the First World War, when all the soldiers come back, and the Maori Battalion has done amazing, glorious work in fighting for our country. Pākehā soldiers were given the right to go into ballots to get farms and land. No Maori soldier was given that right. They said, you've got plenty of land. Go live on your own land. Maybe I said that with a bit of angst that I want to apologise for. But when I heard that, I just thought, that's not just. It's not right. Much of the land going from Māori to Pākehā was done by legal sleight of hand or by the Europeans or the governor, who had, of course, the soldiers and the uh, navy, aggravating tensions and then going to war with Māori. And if Māori were, Māori were prepared to fight for their land, the government confiscated, once, once the government had won, they confiscated millions and millions of acres as compensation and said, you should not have fought against us. We're taking your land as a consequence. And the missionaries, or well, sadly, often by the 50s, 19, uh, 1850s, were seen as supporting uh, the settlers. And so the Maori revival that had taken place in New Zealand stopped as Maori felt completely let down. Now, that's not true. If you read individual missionaries' stories, there are some amazing things that we still need to learn in that regard. Henry Williams um, was accused by Governor Gray because he was constantly telling the governor, you're wrong, you're wrong, this is unjust, you're not to do this. The governor and the New Zealand company spread lies and rumours about him and he was eventually back to England and he was eventually stripped of his reverent status within, within the um, Anglican church and uh, uh, his brothers and some others had to fight on his behalf back in England with the church and he was reinstated about five years later. But his last words as he died, how tragic. How tragic. And yet Henry Williams has been painted by, by some in, in quarters as being on the side of colonialism. He stood against it. And he stood for the Maori people and said, what we are doing is not right. How tragic. You know, the government then, after they'd taken many, in, in battle, had taken many, many uh, millions of acres, the government passed laws that gave them the right to be able to take land. One of the laws, a major one, was what's called the Wasteland Law, and they actually bent scripture and said, this is what God has said, so it's right. And it meant that if land was not specifically being cultivated or lived on, then it was t taken as being, it was belonged to the New Zealand government. Millions of acres taken that way. 
And then they invented a a scheme whereby Maori had to prove to the courts that they actually owned their land. And of course, they had no means of paying the court costs. So then they were in the situation of having to sell their land to pay the courts for for the exercise of proving that the land actually belonged to them. In New Plymouth, the government resorted to bribery. They borrowed 10 million pounds off Britain to be able to build infrastructure in the New Plymouth area and wider as well, I guess. And the only way they could pay that back and what they agreed to from the very beginning was to get land off the Maori and sell it to European so that would actually pay the loan of 10 million pounds plus interest back. So the government, New Zealand government resorted to bribery and they bribed hotel owners and store owners to give cheap credit to Maori and to get them into debt and just let it go on and on until they were well in debt and then call in the loans. And of course the Maori people had no way of being able to pay for the the, uh, loans that they had been offered and offered and given out and, and, and they had to sell thousands and thousands of some of the best land in our country was taken in that way. And they even had um, a situation where if there was a European who was, had a conscience and his conscience was saying he wanted to warn Maori, don't get into debt, they are going to call the loans in. There was an opportunity to, the government paid 500 pounds to be able to hush the person up. And that same government at the same time subsidised liquor outlets to Maori. They paid a lot of, they gave a lot of money so that Maori would be able to have alcohol at a very, very cheap rate around the New Plymouth area. I don't know whether it was wider, but it probably was, to break down Maori families. And it was very successful. So the Maori, Maori people had no redress against these moves. They weren't being treated as equal partners, but they did remember the treaty. And God, you see, in his providence had put a stake in the ground that was the Treaty of Waitangi that addresses all of these issues and calls for equality between Maori and Pākehā. So how did the Maori treat the treaty? How did they view it? Well, I would say they viewed it in exactly the same way God viewed the treaty. It's always been seen as a covenant to Maori. And in Joshua chapter 9... There's a treaty that takes place there. And and I just want to take a moment. I won't read the scriptures, but I'll give them to you, and you can go and um, read this, because actually out of this series, I just hope it stirs up a whole lot of reading, and you want to get into our history. But in Joshua chapter 9, a treaty was made between the Israelites and the Gibeonites. And the Israelites were to go into the promised land, and God had said, these people's sin has reached its level. You are to go in and annihilate everyone within the land. And the Gibeonites knew that they would be part of the annihilation. They would be done and dusted. So they tricked the Israelites into a treaty. They, they put old, old clothes on. They put shoes that were completely worn out. They took bread uh, that was stale. And they came to the Israelites and said, We live a long, long way away from us. We're no threat to, from you. We're no threat to you at all. Make a treaty with us. And the Israelites believed them. They didn't inquire from God. They just said, Okay, you're a long way away. We'll make a treaty with you. And then later on they found that... Um, so they were tricked into a treaty. And later on they found that, um, no, these are our close uh, neighbours, but they never attacked them. 
They never attack them. They, they put requirements on them to a certain degree, but they never ever attack them. And it's interesting that when their own peoples um, attacked the Gibeonites, they said, you guys are traitors, we're going to wipe you out. The Gibeonites called the Israeli army and, and Israel sent their, Joshua sent his troops to protect the Gibeonites. That's how much Joshua honored the treaty that he had been tricked into. He honored it. And then you don't hear anything about it for quite a while until um, 2 Samuel chapter uh, 21 and verses 1 to 14. And it's 400 years later since that treaty had been made. And, and it says there was a, a three-year famine in the land. It just got worse and worse and worse, and it wasn't going away. And finally David said, I don't think this is a natural famine. God, what do you say? And God told him this famine had come because Saul had tried to completely exterminate all the Gibeonites just a few years earlier than that. He'd killed as many as he possibly could. So it had spiritual origin. You see, the consequence of breaking the 400-year-old treaty was that, uh, was that genocide virtually took place, and it was completely unjust. So David then asked the Gibeonites that are still alive, and he said, what can I do to make restitution for you? And they say to him, we want, we, can, we want you just to take seven of Saul's kids, give them to us, and we want to execute them. And so they did that. And then David prays, and the rain comes. The famine is over. So what can we learn from this biblical treaty? First of all, you can see that no covenant is perfect. This one was formed due to trickery, and yet God still honored it. And so did, so did Joshua. And then secondly, God takes covenant seriously. The people have given their word as, as a covenant before God. And thirdly, dishonoring the treaty brings, or a covenant, brings a curse. Negative stuff can happen in a country till the treaty is honored. 400 years later, David was suddenly dealing with the effects of what was signed way back then. And the fourth thing we can learn is that justice has to be done. Restitution is the biblical way. Fifthly, the people were unjustly treated, but they needed to be asked, what would make amends for you? Now swing over to here in New Zealand. Our government has not, has not asked the Maori people that question. The government has set the cap and said, we are prepared to go to a billion dollars and we want that to be divided out. And praise God that that process is in place, as I said last uh, time I preached. But I just want to raise a question here, not with any authority, but just to say perhaps they do need to, people, the Maori people of New Zealand do need to be asked. And then the sixth thing that you can see from that treaty in the Bible is that restitution should be proportional, proportional. It has to be reasonable. It's not right to create another injustice to solve an old injustice. I was so impressed at Parihaka. All these farms around the area of Parihaka, and we're standing on a low hill. And I didn't sense animosity towards the farmers, no matter what nationality they were. I didn't sense that amongst the Maori people as they're talking about this all used to be our land was all taken unjustly. Restitution should be proportional, it should be reasonable. They asked for seven, 
when many, 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 many of their people had been killed. Total restitution was impossible. And the seventh thing that you can see from this treaty, this covenant in the Bible, is that the injured party must be patient and not take matters into their own hands, not be violent. How amazing it is that 178 years, for 178 years since 1840, Maori have been gracious to the crown and they've forgiven Pākehā. Their ancestors chose the way of peace and they have not gone back on that. And yet they are the race of people that the armies of, in World War I and World War II have acknowledged still have warriors amongst them who are the greatest fighters in the world. The Maori Battalion, battalions, are the most decorated units, period. I think Rommel said, give me the Maori Battalion and we'll win. And yet Maori have honoured the decision of the way to deal with this of their ancestors. So what can Christians do? Understand. We didn't cause it, but we can understand our history. We can seek to learn more about our history. And I think the effect for you will be like it has been for me. It will soften your heart. The treaty is a stake in the ground of an aspiration of God's intent for the future of New Zealand. Just bring it up again. It's not going to go away. It's the framework of how two people can live together and be one in Aotearoa. T.W. Ratner said this, In my one hand I have my Bible, and in the other hand I have the Treaty of Waitangi. If I look after the spiritual, all will be well. And there's a quote from an elderly Methodist minister that I read who was in his 80s at the time when he said it. And he said, too many people have the treaty in one hand and nothing in the other. We have a wonderful Christian heritage in New Zealand that we need to claim back because it inspires us to honour each other and to live together as equals. Can I have the band come, please? Respect, understanding, love between Maori people and ourselves grow. You know, there's, there's waves in society that are moving us towards this. But I believe in God's plan, the church is at the very forefront. Very forefront. God, although it's hard to know our history, and God, the more we get into it, the more sadness is there. We want to be honest, but God, we want to see the future too. Lord, you're not going to leave us where we are. We ask for your wind of your spirit, wairua tapu, blow upon us afresh that we might be at the forefront of seeing something wonderful take place. Someone coined the phrase, 
mission interrupted. The land wars caused mission, the mission of God to be interrupted in our country. And we're just praying, God, let us be part of a glorious future where no matter what nationality someone comes from, we can embrace them. We can love them. We can know them in Christ. We can honor them. Lord, would you take a little bit of the stuff out from under the carpet in each one of our lives so that we don't trip up in our relations with any nationality that's different to who we are as a person? Lord, our Christianity is so much more than this private thing that gets me to heaven. We're going to disciple nations. So use us, we pray, in Jesus' name. John's just asked me to pray to close today. Thank you so much, John, for taking us on this journey. It does my heart good. And um, I really appreciate it, and I know others do as well. So let's pray in English, and then um, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Father, and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit um, and Tereo. So Lord, I, I thank you, Lord, that your word says that your word never returns to you void. Your word never dies, and your word across our land has never died and I pray Lord that it will accomplish that for which you sent it way back in the early 1800s and I thank you for the work of the missionaries who worked so hard and sacrificed so much and endured so much and Lord I pray that the work of their hands the sacrifices that they made would come forward into, into the future of our land Thank you for the journey we're on as a church, and I pray that each one of us, that you would speak to each one of us individually about what you'd have us do. In Jesus' name, kia tau, te tato katoa, to atapai o to tato araki a ihu karaiti, me te aroha o te atua, me te whiwhinga tahitanga ki te wairua tapu, aki aki aki. Amen. Well, friends, uh, there's a cup of tea and coffee out there. If you're able to stay and be part of that, we would absolutely love it.